Welcome to episode 11 of the... <laughs> you are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 11 of the Hoop 6 podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. have got another good one for you today. I've got the chance to sit down with Steve Nelson, British basketball legend who obviously had a, who obviously had a successful 15-year pro career in the BBL, um, was an England senior international, and of course is the father of Luke Nelson, who's doing big things in the States with UC Irvine, and daughter Kyla Nelson, another England international who, funnily enough, is actually competing at the Women's League final up in uh, Sheffield at the EIS today. So it's a really good conversation. Steve is currently the CEO of West of England Sports Trust. Um, so I thought it would uh, be appropriate, as he, he kind of knows about the admin side of things, to speak to him about the current situation with Basketball England as well, um, with the board directors leaving uh, for Beeble UK, this private investment um, coming into the sport. So there was a lot of interesting conversation. But of course, we also spoke about his career, what it's like, um, you know, coming from where he's come from, how he got to where he got to, um, the state of the league uh, back then and compared to today. And also, of course, what it's like to be the parents, um, the parent of, of, of Luke and Kyla. So yeah, let me know what you think as always. Um, always looking for feedback. You can email me on sam at hoopsfix.com. I will reply to every single one of them. And of course, if you're listening on iTunes, if you go and give us a rating on there and leave some feedback, it helps the uh, podcast rise in the rankings, which will help it spread further and wider to more and more people, which of course is what we're trying to do. So yeah, have a listen. Uh, let me know what you think. Here is episode 11. We're back again, and I'm honoured to be here with Steve Nelson, who's currently the CEO of the West of England Sport Trust uh, and a bit of an English basketball legend, having a successful 15-year, uh, a successful 15-year professional career, um, and of course being a senior England international as well. Steve, welcome. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. So, obviously, uh, talking up-to-date current events, uh, you just got back from the states, I believe. What were you doing there? I spent a bit of time watching some. Uh college basketball, watching my son play, Luke, uh, for UC Irvine, uh, watching them make history. It was a fantastic trip. That's all, all I can say. You know, he he was fantastic through the Big West tournament, which meant they got the automatic berth to play in the NCAA for the first time in school history. Uh, and then um, took the trip up to Seattle to watch the heartbreaker against Louisville. Yeah. How uh, how does it feel, you know, seeing seeing him on the big stage like that and sort of getting all this attention? Um, I'm I'm really proud of him. You know, he's worked hard to get where he is, um, and he's continuing to work hard to improve. I think, especially this year, um, he, he has some challenges to overcome with illness and uh, injury, and then having to wear that face mask for a good period of time. So, you know. He, he had some challenges this year, but when his team needed him, you know, he stepped up big time uh, and and really helped push him over the line to get the automatic berth. So, you know, it was fantastic. Have you been over to watch a lot of his games? We went over um, for a couple of weeks in over Christmas of his freshman year, but finance and time means it's not easy to get out there all the time. I've got to say, I've had a few Friday mornings when I've been a little tired, um, having got up in the middle of the night to to watch his games when they're being live streamed. So I've watched pretty much all of them that I could find mainly a legal way to, to watch them online where that was available. Yeah. So obviously, uh, for those that don't know, 
you've obviously got Luke, and then you've also got Kyla as well, who's a successful player in her own right. She is. She's she's really coming into her own this season. Um, Kyla's up at Oakland's uh, playing with Lee Ryan and Michael Ball, and they've gone the whole season undefeated this year. Um, even took a WBBL team scalp in the National Cup. So, uh, and she she was also MVP of the um, of the National Trophy final, where she had 19 points, nine rebounds, and just just played really well. And I was up watching her this weekend, where they beat Oxford again, actually in the semi-finals of the their playoffs, and she had a great game, had 28 points, was playing really well, you know. So. Hopefully she's she's got a similar path to follow to her brother. When you uh, when you look at these two sort of growing up and, and compare it to what it was like uh, when you were coming through, how how do you compare the two? I think it's really difficult to compare them. I mean, for I, mean, I grew up in Birmingham, right? Um, but I sort of grew up on on the the edge of Birmingham, if you like. So I wasn't part of the whole bullet setup where guys like Mike Landale. Kenny Scott, Dave Brown, Paul Douglas, who coached um, Birmingham Knights last season. Yep. You know, those guys were all playing for Birmingham Bullets, but I was kind of an outsider. And myself and Martin Hemlin, who you, you might know, who played yep. at uh, London Towers for a number of years, we both went to the same secondary school. Um, and I joined a club in West Brom to play juniors, and, and he, he came and joined the same club. Um, we were okay. We never made a final in our lives, um, but you know, had had a good experience playing junior basketball. I mean, with with my two, you know, uh, here in you know we live in Worthing. I got back involved in coaching basketball, really, as my kids came to an age where they might be interested in playing. So, got really involved with what was originally Brighton Bears and then became Worthing Thunder, um, just to. You know, to try and help, uh, and I've ended up over the last ten years staying involved and um, trying to, you know, help the club achieve some successes. Which, you know, I think it's fair to say we have done a number of teams now that have gone to final four. So, on the boys' side, anyway, there's there's always been a bit of a structure here, um, and I think I've been able to go in and and help to enhance that with a lot of help from guys like Danny Hildreth and Mark Richards, um, who have coached with me over a number of years at, at different age groups. And you're, st- you're still um, involved with Worthing now, right? I am. I'm actually about to step away. Uh-huh. Um, having been involved you know, consistently for the last 10 years and juggling, sort of volunteering here and my job, which is based over in Bristol, uh, it's been a bit of a, a handful and I'm going to take a year and then have a think about you know what I want to do next in terms of volunteering in this sport that I do love and can't seem to get away from. <laughs> do you think you're always going to be staying involved with? You're always going to stay involved with basketball, no matter what happens. Um, more than likely, I will have some involvement in basketball. I mean, I have to say, next year will be the first time in oh god, probably since I was about twelve, thirteen years old that I've not had a direct involvement in the sport in some some way, shape or form. So it's gonna be a bit weird. <laughs> but I need to kind of give a bit of time to my very understanding wife, Sarah, and um and also just leave some time to get up to Oakland's really to watch Kyla play next year. 
Yeah. Uh, hopefully, Oakland will be in the WBBL. They deserve to be. Um, uh, so, you know, that's my my sort of short-term goal is just to really support her as she goes through this next phase. What do you think about everything they've done with the WBBL this season? Kind of trying to professionalise it a little bit. Um, I don't really have a strong opinion either way. Something needed to change. Um, and uh, from what I understand, in the main, the teams in the WBBL have, have been relatively strong. Um, although I think one or two have, have really struggled. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next year. Cause obviously they've said to a number of teams, there wouldn't be relegation this year. Um, but when you've got programs like Oakland's that are really supporting some of the younger players in the country, uh, then I think you have to find a way to support that, especially when they want to push that group through to play at the highest level possible, which again gives those girls the chance to develop as quickly as as as, you know, as they're capable. Yeah. So obviously, I want to talk about you. I'm aware we're talking about other things at the moment, but that was just a sort of natural uh, diversion of the conversation. But um, so you grew up just outside Birmingham and you started playing with with West Brom. What was it that sort of first sparked your interest in basketball? Was it something you saw on TV? Was it was it a, a session at school? Like what was it that first got you into it? Well, um, well, I originally grew up in Small Heath, which is in uh, East East Birmingham, and um, I went to a, a school, Washford East School, where they had a sort of really informal approach to sport. And I can still remember my first day of secondary school, walking into the gym and seeing all these kids running up and down playing basketball. But you know, first day, I didn't have any kit with me, and the teacher goes, um, "Well, if you bring your trainers tomorrow, you can come in and you can play." Yeah. Um, so. The next day, I ditched the, the terrible briefcase my mum had made me take on the first day, <laughs> got a kit bag, put my stuff in there, and come lunchtime, I was in the gym, and we were just messing around, really, and this teacher came over and said, you know, this is how you do a layup. So me and this other kid spent the whole lunchtime trying to perfect making a layup, uh, and by the end of it, we were kind of just about there, and we were like, look, so we can do it now. So he came back and he did a layup and he put the ball around his back and my jaw almost hit the floor. <laughs> and I think I was hooked from that from that day on. So that was my first involvement there. And that was a great school for, you know, basic philosophy was get the ball, try and beat your man one on and if you can't pass it to somebody else. Yeah. Um, and, so, you know, you learned to, you had to play, you had to stand up and play in that, in that situation. And I did okay, you know, in those early days. And then my parents moved house and I had to move school and I went to Shenley Court School in southwest Birmingham uh, and they had a much more formal approach to the sport there. You know, it was, you, you turn up at lunchtime, you put your full kit on and you do drills. Um, but I guess for me it was kind of perfect because I had these kind of street ball skills, if you like, and then, um, you know, from sort of 15 I was starting to have to put that into a structure um, and you know, with myself and Martin Hemlin on the, on the same team, he, he was just big, and I'm sure he won't mind me saying a little overweight in those <laughs> days. Um, but with the two of us on the team, we, we were one of the stronger teams in Birmingham. Um, so that was the start. Um, but we always used to lose to uh, Dave Fisher's school, you know, where basically most of the Birmingham Bullets juniors were playing. Um, and, and I can remember going to, the way Birmingham was structured, you'd have area trials, and I think there were 10 areas, 10 districts, and then um, 
there'd be a Birmingham team that they'd select and then a West Midlands team. And at the time, I can, you know, 14, 15, I can just remember not being able to get past the district team. Uh, and at that point, I was like, I got to, you know, I was getting really a bit frustrated about it. And my teacher happened to mention that the club in West Brom were looking for juniors. So um, I, I can remember he told me where they, where they trained and I went home. I, I called the le- director inquiries. I got the number for the ledger center. I called them up and asked them, you know, what day does the junior basketball team train? And I think it was a Wednesday. So the next Wednesday, I came home from school, dropped my, my school bag down, said to my mum, I'm off to basketball training. I won't be back till late. I got on three buses. I traveled for an hour and a half and I turned up in this gym and I was the first one there. Um, and luckily, the other players and the coach, you know, were happy to see me, welcomed me into the team, and um, and the rest is is kind of history. And I just I played four years at under 19s because there weren't any staggered age groups at that stage. Um, it was just under 19. It was just under 19s, yeah. Oh wow! And then did uh, it, was it? How was it broken up into like was it North and South Conference or? No, it was one national league. Oh, so it's uh, fully national. Yeah, we we went. You know, up to I can remember going to Manchester on numerous occasions and playing against Carl Miller, um, amongst others, and then down on the south coast as well to Brighton. So you know, we just used to travel wherever there were teams, and I guess there weren't that many. But you had some good quality games. There were I don't remember any blowouts either way. You know, all the games were competitive. You know, whether it was in uh, Camden or, or against the East London Royals or. Um, you know, Manchester particularly were quite strong at that time as well, uh, and still are. Yeah. Uh, How many teams were there in the in, across the league? Um, I would guess there were maybe ten to twelve teams. There weren't a huge number of us, yeah. but you know, to, if you wanted to play at the the best level, that's what you did. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm a little bit younger than sort of Steve Butnell's age group and, and um, yeah. Pete Scantz who are both you know, really good friends of mine um, but it was just really competitive at that time you know Crystal Palace were there there was a team down in Brighton um, Manchester was probably about as far north as we went um, and then you know, a couple of teams dotted around the Midlands as well so the, the competition was good and, and I just got you know I got a chance to play a little bit to begin with and, and a bit more as time went on, um, and they had a they had a senior team uh, who were playing sort of div, what, the old Division Two when before the BBL was set up, um, and they won promotion. The my last year of juniors when I was playing juniors and seniors at the same time, um, but the court where we played was deemed not big enough for Division One, so that's when we started having to play our games down in Telford. Um, with the with the Telford Turbos, yeah. um, we to be blunt, we weren't very good. Um, <laughs> but we had we had some decent Americans. Dal Shackelford, who played here for a long time down here in Worthing, actually um, was one of our two Americans, um, along with a guy called Mike Owens uh, and another guy, Marty Head. You know, who were all good players, but. We just weren't very good, and um, with all the turmoil, 
with the you know having to travel and everything, we just didn't we didn't play great. We were playing uh, RAF Cosford in the middle of an air, airplane hangar yeah. with about two hundred people watching us because no one in Telford even knew what basketball was at that point. <laughs> um, what was so, the what was the um, like for you growing up? Was there obviously nowadays it's all the kids want to go to the states. So everyone's just trying to get out as young as possible, and I'm assuming it. That that sort of route wasn't as prominent back then. Um, was the professional league something that younger players aspired to more, or was it still a case of they're trying to go abroad? Or you know, what was in your head about where you wanted to, to go with basketball? Well, I think America was the you know was the mecca, and at that point it was just I want to go to America to play basketball. But you didn't necessarily know what the quality of the program was you were going to, or anything about which schools I might be interested in you. To be honest, it was a lot about who you knew rather than what you knew uh, or how good you were. Um, you know, quite often, the you know, it, it was just about having a coach that had contacts there that could get you a look. Um, you know, the Telford team went bust halfway through the season and got taken over by Portsmouth. Um, and I was one of two players that were retained uh, on the Portsmouth team for the following year. Uh, and one of the things the coach had said there was he, he would try and get me out to the States the following year. But it, it just didn't, it didn't happen. It, I mean, you know, obviously now you've got um, YouTube and everything else, so yeah. people can get a chance to have a look at players. And, and I think I've said to you before privately, but, you know, I have to say publicly, thank you to you because the video you did of Luke at the under-16 and under-18 Final Fours in 2011 when we won it... Um, really helped his recruiting. You know, yeah. There's no question. It was a very easy thing to point people to, to say, you know, here's, here's what he's done. Back in my day, that, that just didn't happen. And it, you know, someone would have to completely trust whoever was recommending a kid to go out there to get them out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just a very, very different situation. And I, I wanted to go, thought I was going to high school at one point, um, but it just didn't, it didn't happen for me. Are you disappointed about that now still, or do you look back and you're kind of happy how things worked out? Well, I mean, things worked out all right. I had a great career playing basketball. It didn't make me rich, um, <laughs> but I, I definitely had fun, made some great friendships, got some fantastic memories, had a, had a lot of success, was you know, a key part of some really successful teams. Um, so it is what it is, you know. You, you can't really, for me, I can't look back and regret it. You know, I said to Luke when he, when he was going out in the situation he's in, you know, I said, I'm not jealous of you. You know, he's my son. The last thing I want to do is be jealous of him. <laughs> but, I, but I'm definitely envious because the journey he's on is just phenomenal. And I would have loved to have had the opportunity that he's had. Mm. Um, but it wasn't to be. And, you know, the result of that is you know, I met my wife in Portsmouth. Um, and we've got two kids that are helping the next generation of British basketball sort of put its name on the map. Yeah, 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 for sure. So then, so you were play, you started playing Telford as a junior, and you were playing juniors and seniors, right? Is that what you yeah. said? Yeah. Yeah. And so then, was it? Um, were you actually a professional at that point? Was basketball all you were doing, or were you working as well, or how did it work? I was at sixth form college at the time, um, but I wasn't getting paid. If I was lucky, I got expenses. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, there was a long period. There was a period in my first. My first four clubs, I think it is, um, all went bankrupt <laughs> while I was with them. 
I hate to tell you how much money I'm owed by various clubs over the years, but you know the, the contracts at that time, in all honesty, really weren't worth the paper they were written on. Really? Uh, so, you know, when I was playing as a junior um, at Telford, I don't think I even got expenses. Um, but I wanted to play, and, you know, luckily I had supportive parents who... It helped me learn to drive when I was 17 and gave me the family car and, you know, I was off training. Um, Did either of your so, parents play basketball? No. no. I, was, I was the first one in my family to pick up a basketball, really. Um, okay. um, yeah, so it was just one of those things. I don't really quite know how I found it. And, and my dad's only 5'10". My mum's about 5'2", so I'm not quite sure what happened. <laughs> You were lucky. You were lucky. The lucky one. Really. So then, what? When? So you were at Sixth Form College, and then when did the transition? Like, what, sort of, what was your progression from there? Did you then, um, after you finished education, go full time into basketball? Or how did it work? Yeah, I, I did. I, again, it was just fortuitous timing. I think I said earlier, um, Telford pretty much went bust and got bought out by Portsmouth. City Football Club, who ran the Portsmouth FC basketball yeah. team at that time. And um, uh, it was after the transfer deadline when they bought the franchise. So through to the end of the season, they used to pick all the old Telford players up in, in Birmingham and West Brom and drive us by coach down to Portsmouth, put us up in a hotel. Um, then we'd play the game and then they'd drive us back to Birmingham the next day. So... <laughs> Um, you know that, that's how we finished that season, and, and you know again they paid us expenses, you know for our time and everything at that stage, which was great. It was the first money I'd ever had from playing basketball, and then um, obviously they had you know pretty deep pockets, and out of the whole team they kept myself and uh, Dave Harris, who went on to have quite a long career with Leicester as well, and then they brought in the big guns, so. Uh, Colin Irish, Alan yeah. Cunningham, Joel Moore, Dan Davis, Andrew Bailey, Michael Hales, uh, Trevor Anderson. You know, um, the just a you know phenomenal list of players. And I signed a professional contract with Portsmouth. Um, How old were you at was, this point? I was nineteen. Okay. Um, it wasn't a lot of money. Um, I was earning about 100 quid a week, but I was happy. Plus, I had the share of a car, and um, they put us up in a in a house as well. So, you know, it was it was great. And all I was doing was doing what I love, playing basketball um, and learning. After say my first season, I played 11 minutes in league games <laughs> in the whole season. Um, but I can still. You know, I learned so much that year tr just training with those guys and I can remember kind of a turning point in the January when, I don't know, something just clicked and I, and I started playing a lot better. And then the following season I was playing over 20 minutes a game. Um, and then the season after that I started and I pretty much started every year after that. Um, so it was, a, it was definitely a, a great baptism um, on and off the court really learning to play the game with those guys and the work you've got to put in away from the court as well yeah. to get yourself ready. What was the, what was the BBL called back then? 
It was just National League Division One. Oh, it was just called National League Division One. Yeah, um, but I mean, I was, I was. Um, I mean, a few years later, uh, we were playoff champions for the last National League Division One and the first BBL Championship um, with Worthing. You know, a few years later. So, um, I really do feel I, I was around at what was a significant peak in British basketball. One that I would argue hasn't quite been reached again since that point. Really? You think that was the peak right there? At the moment, I would say that was the peak. When we were playing in massive arenas, you know, pretty much all the teams were playing in big arenas. Yeah. Um, you know, at least a couple of thousand seats um, up to, you know, games, league games at the Manchester Evening News Arena that used to draw 10, 11,000 people to watch. Um, so... Yeah, I would say we were, at, we were at a peak then where we had um, you know, lots of games were on Sky TV in those days as well as um, the finals being on BBC. And I noticed we, the finals were going to be on the red button. Yeah. But when we were playing, it was on grandstand on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> um, you know, right there for people to flick on and find by accident. How many... Uh... How how many other guys were kind of uh, were young British guys like you playing and contributing like that? Were you a kind of rarity or was it more of the norm? No, there, there was loads of us, and and I would say there was kind of a uh, there was almost a passing a crossing of the generations because there was a few older guys and Paul Stimson really sticks out in my mind as one of these old English guys that had been around for years that us young up and comers were were trying to out of the spot basically but yeah. you know there were some really talented players around at that stage I mean just the, the guys in Birmingham Mike Landau was you know I can remember growing up and you go to summer camps in Birmingham where they'd have like a Belgian coach there or something and um, they'd just pull Mike out to show you know this is how you shoot a jump shot this is how you dribble the ball because he was you know he was textbook in terms of his form and then you know talents like Kenny Scott um, Paul Douglas, uh, Dave Brown, you know, all th- these were just the guys in Birmingham. And then I know there was another pool of guys up north in Manchester and another pool down in London. And so, and we were really sort of battling each other, you know, to be the best that we could be. Yeah. Then, so when you, when you look at the league today and you kind of look at that as the peak back then, what do you think it was that changed things? The answer is well it's a number of things but the 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 short answer is the bosman ruling that meant that um you you had the right to work as a as a european anywhere in europe and the decision of the bbl at that time um to uh to risk litigation um and go down a route where rather than just opening up to Europe, so that you'd have eight Europeans on your your team, and then two non-Europeans. They decided to go down a, a route of having five British and five non-British players. Um, that just it, it changed everything, really. It changed how teams recruited. Because um, in my early days, I can, and I can tell you from conversations I had, coaches were most interested first and foremost in getting their homegrown players. And then they'd find the Americans to fit around them. But when Bosman came in and you, and you could go with five non-British players, yeah. you you know you could get some Americans over here that 
You know, when I was first playing, they wouldn't even have got off the bench, you know, because of the quality of the Americans that we had in the league. Yeah. And then of the five British players, only three, well, so the, it, in order to contribute to development at the time, their view was we're going to have two under-23s on each team. So at that stage, I think there were 13 teams in the league. So you, you had a situation where playing top-flight um, English basketball, British basketball, you only had 39 guys who were British that were playing, and the rest were all non-British. So um, you know, I think that, that really hurt. And then it just basically meant then, if you were kind of on the periphery, maybe you know, not going to be able to make a living, enough money playing the sport, then you did one of two things. You either went to Division 2 or 3 in Belgium and made a bit of a living out there or wherever in Europe, or you dropped down a, le a level, you played semi-professionally, um, and you went and got a job. Yeah. Um, so I think that, that, to me, is what lies behind um, you know, the, the a kind of gap we had in really top British players coming through because they weren't getting a chance to play at the top level. And were the, were, you, were the British guys kind of aware of what was going on at the time and upset about it? Was there any kind of resentment? Or, or was it a kind of thing that you only see now you look back on it? No, at the time, um, you know, I, I sat across um, a negotiating table, if you like, on behalf of a fledgling players association that we had at that time um, from um, the then chief exec of the BBL and Kevin Routledge. And we warned against going down the route they did. I, you know, we were quite happy as English guys to compete against Europeans for our jobs here in England. Because basically we knew the BBL was, one of, was, was not one of the top paid leagues in Europe. So we felt the European players that would be looking to come here, we could compete against. Yeah. Um, but the league went down this route and you know, it created a bit of a, of a glass ceiling really through which you know, young English guys had to make their choice. Do I, want, do I love this sport that much um, that I want to keep playing? And if I want to keep playing, I've got to go and find somewhere else to go play? Or do I just want to play part-time, play for some fun and, uh, and start a career? Uh, and you know, I can, there are loads of guys that I know had that choice to make and who prematurely, I think, went out, of the, went out of the top level of the sport. Yeah. Do, you, what, what, do you remember what sort of season this was, roughly? Oh, now you're testing me. Um, it would have been, uh, I'm guessing, around 88. 88. Let me, let me Google it quickly. It's the Bo it was the Bosman ruling, right? Yeah. Um, okay. Might have been a bit later. Yeah. It come up. It comes up as nineteen ninety five, but I don't think that's the specific. No, it was definitely one. earlier than that. Yeah. I can tell you that it was um, earlier. Okay. But, well, uh, yeah. It was. It was back then. Uh, 99, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll look it up later. Okay, fair enough. So that was that was the sort of changing point for you. Um, and at that point, uh, you were playing for Portsmouth still? Um, when the Bosman ruling came in, uh, where was I? I really have to think about it. Um, I think I was at Worthing by then. So, no, you're right, it might have been early 90s, early 90s rather than late 80s. Um, but you know, it was 
it was just one of those situations where you could see it coming. You could see what was going to happen. You'd end up flooding the market. You know, there's no disrespect to any of the guys that have been here and playing over a number of years, but flooding the market with um, Americans, um, which meant there were less opportunities for British guys and no budget left to, to pay the ones that were that were potentially available to play, but what needed to make a living from it. What sort of budgets were teams working with in those days? Um, it, it did vary, and obviously you had some bigger teams and some smaller teams, but there were budgets of up to four, five hundred thousand pounds a year. Um, you know, which meant, you know, I think as it as it moved towards the Bosman, budgets were starting to get cut, and were probably half of that. Um, as we sort of went through that change, yeah. but again, rather than going for two non-British players and maybe a third dual national teams, all of a sudden were able to recruit five guys. Um, so they just spread the money out a little bit more, um, but less of it was then available for English guys to make a living from. Yeah, of course. And so with uh, having a look at your little timeline here, and um, so you compete in the European Champions League, Champions League with Portsmouth. Is that right? Yeah, we did. So what was the format of that competition? How did it work and what sort of teams were you playing against? Uh, well, the journeys into Europe tended to be relatively short, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, we played uh, the Portsmouth, uh, t- we played against this team from the old Yugoslavia. And it's going to really annoy me because I can't think exactly what they were called now. But they were, they were based not far from Split. Um, and they came over to Portsmouth for the first leg. It was two legs. So it was two legs, and then, was, then if you won over two legs, you went through. If you lost, you went eight. Uh, I can remember they came to Portsmouth, and we played pretty decent against them, and we beat them by 20 points. So we head over there thinking, yeah, we got this. There's no way these guys are going to beat us by 20. Um, now, this was in you know the, the sort of late 80s, so it was before the sort of the Berlin Wall had come down and uh, and you know Yugoslavia had broken up and we went over there um, and we had a Romanian a Bulgarian and another Eastern European referee as a as a as a referee <laughs> and uh, I still remember the first the first play of the game um, we won the tip uh, it got tipped to Alan Cunningham who took about two, three dribbles, and he went He went to dunk the ball, and he managed to somehow dunk it, but I swear to you, the guy chasing back literally shoved him, and there was no call. Oh, wow. Right? And for, t- for that, those 20 minutes, we did not get a single call. <laughs> um, and, and we ended up being down 20 at the half. Oh, wow. Which was just... And at that time, we were, you know, we were defending league champions, in, in, and we'd hardly lost a game. Yeah. Um, and we ended up losing by 26 and went out of that European competition. But um, great experience, really good experience. Were, were a lot of other teams uh, competing in those sort of European competitions around that time? No, it tended to be the the odd team. The, the team that did it the longest slightly later on was the London Towers. Yeah, of course. Um, with Kevin Cadle. So, you know, those guys competed for a few years, whereas um, with us it, it was the odd year here or there. So, you know, I was at Sunderland for two years. There was one year that we went into the, the I think it was called the Korak Cup then, but it's like the Euro Cup now. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, 
again, you know, the, the rule won us one year with Turns Valley. We played in the Euro Cup as well uh, against the Croatian team. You know, so it was all kinds of, it was just, I, I couldn't give you a logic behind it. Um, but there's never been a formula for British teams to play in European competition because we just don't do it regularly enough. Yeah, and a lot of teams just don't have the fan base to make it worthwhile on the home leg either, right? They just can't make exactly. money through the gate. Exactly. Um, okay, interesting. So then, so by all accounts at this point, with Portsmouth, everything seemed to be going okay and then, and then the club went bankrupt. Well, it, I suppose this was a nicer bankruptcy. This was more of <laughs> a... The, the owner decided he'd, he, he'd had enough and he sold everything. He sold Portsmouth Football Club and he closed off the franchise. But, you know, uh, I give him every credit because I got paid everything that was outstanding on my contract and a little bit more. Right. Um, so, you know, after you know, he, did it, he did it properly. But I then went from there to um, what was one of two teams in Manchester at that time, uh, Olympic City Giants. Um, and by halfway through the season, we'd hit financial difficulties, shall we say? Um, yeah, spent a lot of time like getting paid in that in there, um, and then went to Sunderland the following year. First year, fantastic. Second year, the owner ran into financial difficulties, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, was right back there again, not getting paid. I, I did start to think I was jinxed for a while. <laughs> so when 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 Teams, when teams go bankrupt or, you know, teams owe you money, like, obviously, even now we still hear stories all the time about guys in Europe and they're chasing checks and everything else. What do you do about it? Is it one of those things you just end up accepting that you're never going to get your money back or do you try and put up a fight and get it back or? Um, I've been, I've been all routes. I've fought to get it back. I've even, I even took one club to court for wrongful dismissal, but, um, you know, Which again, Thames Valley Tigers. Okay. Um, but uh, by the time we were able to get through the courts, the the sort of parent company had changed, and there was there was no route to follow to, you know, to be compensated. Um, but there you go. <laughs> that's that's basketball for you. Yeah. And and I kind of look at it. It was all part of the learning, and I got them back on the court anyway. So. Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> So then, with so with Manchester and Sunderland, how much were you playing back then? Like, were you contributing a lot? Were you getting a lot of minutes and everything else? Yeah, I, I, I'm with both teams. I was a starter. Um, you know, playing 25, 30 minutes a game. That went down a bit in my second year at Sunderland when a certain Steve Butnell came and <laughs> took, took a little some of my minutes. Um, but again, I was still contributing significantly to that team and to to our success. Um, you know, we, we made the finals of playoffs, got beaten by a very good Kingston team. We, we won one of the cup competitions over that period. And I think um, if, when I listened to Steve Butler's podcast, he mentioned uh, trying with seven players at the <laughs> WICB, which was just unbelievable. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I so mean, what happened? Talk me through it. Talk me through it. Our first game, we lined up against a French team, and there's seven of us warming up. And, you know, we had no height. Um, you know, the, the, it was Russ Saunders, Pete Scantz, um, Steve, myself, and a couple other guys. And I'm not kidding you, the opposing team, they were laughing at us during warm-ups. I still remember it. They were laughing at us. And we came out and we blew them out of the water. We beat them by about 20 points. 
Were you um, confident in the warm-ups? Did you actually think, oh, we, we're going to be all right? Or were you thinking, oh, we're absolutely screwed? Well, we knew it was going to be tough. Yeah. But there was, you know, th- to be honest, the, co- the coach we had couldn't mess it up because he couldn't make any substitutions. He just had to play <laughs> us. And when we were tired, we'd, you know, one of the guys would come in off the bench and spell us for a few minutes and then we'd go back in. <laughs> um, so we just played, yeah. you know, and, um, and we just, we just got on a roll. We, we, I can't even remember. We beat a, uh, an Australian Institute team in the semi-final and then I'm sure it was an American team we beat in the final or something. I, I don't even remember. It's, it's too long ago. It's three games like that, quarter-final, semi-finals and finals. Like yeah. That format. Yeah, that was the format. And it yeah, was packed so, out, big crowds. Yeah, I mean, Crystal Palace was packed, yeah. both sides, you know, so they had all the seat now and you get a great crowd in and it was all over New Year as well, so good party atmosphere as well. So it was just, a, it was a brilliant tournament. It was you know, a, a, an unexpected success, I would say. <laughs> Why did the WICB stop? No idea. Yeah. We really have no idea. Um, probably a combination of finance and being able to attract teams of a high enough quality, but um, it just stopped. Yeah. No, it's one of those interesting ones that everyone talks about it, um, and they always speak so highly of it and the calibre of teams and competition and everything else. Uh, but, yeah, no one kind of knows what happened to it and where it went. I'd like to do more research into it, try and find out. Um, mm kind of what happened with it because it's, it's obviously was a was a top tournament back in the day um, mm, definitely so from Sunderland it was to Kingston yeah brief stop at Kingston um, uh, that coincided with me realising I wasn't going to be a millionaire from basketball so <laughs> maybe I needed to get a degree um, so I actually you know that was kind of the first time I changed my my philosophy up until then it was have boots will travel you know if they'll pay me I'm going yeah. Whereas I actually um, uh, registered to go to university, and then I tried to find a team that I could play for that was within shouting distance. So I was at, I guess it's now part, it's now Brunel, but it was West London Institute at the time, um, and Kingston were one of the nearest teams uh, who were playing in the BBL. Um, so I signed up and I was playing. I was coming off the bench actually with Kingston. Um, behind Alton Bird and Ross Saunders, who was there at the time, plus uh, Colin Irish, Alan Cunningham, were also uh, at Kingston at that time. Um, I wasn't paid very well. Um, but uh, and, and we played in European competition as well, actually, and lost to Mechelen in, in, in two legs again, um, both home and away. Yeah. Uh, and I think at that point, I think, that, again, finances came into play where um, basically I can still remember Kevin Cadle telling us all at practice that as we were now in Europe, there were going to be some cuts and some changes and it, on this bit of paper is what you're going to get paid from now on. And given I wasn't getting very paid very much, I went to getting paid almost nothing at all. Um, so at that, that point I decided to uh, transfer and I don't know it seems to have been a bit of a theme I did a, I was at uni in London and I was playing I played I finished the season playing for Derby oh wow um, so you travelling <laughs> just a little bit yeah, I used to leave um, uh, Terry Mangan was the coach there at the time um, and I used to leave uh, West London about 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon drive for four hours up a ridiculous M1 there was no M40 at that, that time 
um, trained for two hours, stayed with my brother who was living in Nottingham at that time, and then travelled wherever the team was, maybe was playing, maybe even back down to London, <laughs> um, for the game on the Saturday, train on the Sunday, um, go to my mum and dad's for dinner in Birmingham afterwards, and then head back to London. Um, but I wanted to stay playing at the top level, and that was my only chance to do it, so I was prepared to stick some miles on the car. So you didn't um, have to practice during a week? No, I, was, I trained at college in the week. You know, um, Terry understood my situation and, and um, you know, was happy that I made Friday session. And we always used to have like a scrimmage session on a Sunday. So, you know, and, we, you know, we made the playoffs uh, and lost to, I remember losing to, oh, that would have been, it would have been the early London Towers. Um when uh, they were all English, so the uh, the Scantlebury brothers were playing there, John Moore and others, and, and uh, we lost to them in a really close playoff match. But I did have one of my best games ever yeah. while playing for Derby. Um, funnily enough, playing against Worthing, where uh, I think I lit them up for about 38. <laughs> nice. Um, uh, where we won a, won a close game in overtime. But uh, yeah, I do. It was, it was, we had some good times. And Clarence Wiggins was on that team as well, you know, okay. who I know passed away recently. Yeah. Um, but we had some good fun. No, great teammates. Um, but not sustainable beyond half a season. Yeah. Were, uh, were any teams doing well success, um, financially back then, or, or was it kind of more sur- like under the surface, they were, they were all kind of having problems and it was propped up on very shaky foundations? It was, it was a bit of a mix. Um, but again, you know, I think looking back, some of, some of the investment that was going on was out of proportion with where the league was at the time. So, you know, some of the investments that went into Manchester Giants around that time, um, and you know, uh, uh, the, the Kingston franchise got bought out and moved to Glasgow um, for for you know for a couple of seasons. You know, some of that I don't think was sustainable in the long run. Um, so it was a real mix, but. In the main, you know, despite my history, most of the guys got paid most of the time. You know, Terms Valley were probably one of the teams on the on, on a very steady footing. They played in a relatively small arena, but you know they had a backer and um, you know and a, and the budget they worked to every year, and, and that was probably one of the most con, you know, consistent in terms of not having any problems, apart from the fact that they anyway breached my contract. But that's a whole other point. <laughs> Um, so, um, but again, I had good experiences playing there with some some great teammates. You know, Steve Butler was on that team as well. Neville Hopkins, Pete Scants. You know, we've you know, we, we definitely played together in a few different places. Do you stay in touch with all these guys now? Still, yeah. Well, I mean, Pete's one of my best friends. Um, Steve um, lost. I'd lost touch with him a little bit, but obviously he was coaching Luke yeah. for a few years and. Um, and around, you know, I've been involved in coaching National League, as I said, so I, I keep bumping into Steve, and we catch up every now and then on the phone, you know, Cole Brown and I never played together, but we always had to mark each other, um, but again, you know, he's, he's another guy that I, I try and touch base with from time to time. Yeah. So then after Derby, uh, Derby it was uh, Worthing. Yeah, well. That's, that's where you were for a while, right? Yeah, um, 
again, I was still at uni, um, but it was a relatively easy trip out of London down to Worthing. Um, but it was Alan Cunningham's first coaching job. Um, uh, and he and uh, Colin Irish left from Kingston and went to Worthing and invited, you know, they wanted me to join, managed to agree a contract with them. And, um, and we went on to basically be the most successful team through the 90s, really. We, we won three back-to-back playoff championships. Um, so, you know, we, and again, all, well, we won the league the first year as well as winning the playoffs. We were near the top of the league in the second year and then we finished seventh our third year when I'd gone on my little sabbatical to Thames Valley. Yeah. Um, so basically after two years at Worthing, when I'd finished my degree in London, decided I needed to be to stay in and around London. So I went to Thames Valley, but as I've touched on, it didn't really work out and ended up transferring back to Worthing um, sort of a week after helping Thames Valley lift the National Cup. <laughs> um, how, so, long were you in uh, Thames, how many games did you play for Thames Valley? Well, I was there till just before the transfer deadline. So, from the we used to start the season sort of mid October, uh, or so early October, and I left in the January, uh, right at the end of the January. Yeah. And strangely enough, my first game in a Worthing uniform, back with Worthing, was against Thames Valley. <laughs> and, at that, and at that time, they were second, or in the league, and Worthing, I think, were. Eighth or ninth, had had a really tough season, and um, and we beat them. <laughs> you know, I had, I could still. First three quarters was just bizarre because the Tuesday, I'd been training with um, Thames Valley. Wednesday I trained with Worthing. Friday I trained with Worthing. Saturday I'm playing for Worthing against Thames Valley. <laughs> so it was it was bizarre, and I'd had uh, three quarters. I just kind of muddled my way through the game, but. Um, managed to make some key baskets in the fourth quarter, which allowed us to beat them, and um, and we we kind of went on a bit of a run from there, really. Um, despite, despite Cleve Lewis, who was one of the other Americans we had, um, get, getting injury, actually had a, a skull fracture, um, so he missed a few games. But that just allowed me to get my feet back in to the team and kind of. Because one of the things I always used to do, I used to call a lot of our offences. So whether I was a point or a two, um, you know, I'd run the team really. And Cleve being out gave me a chance to get back to doing that. And when he came back, we just went on this phenomenal run, and we were red hot going into the playoffs. And guess who we drew in the first round of the playoffs? Who did you draw in the first round of the playoffs? Thames Valley. <laughs> Um, and at that time, the first round was, was the best of three games. Okay. So you play uh, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. Yeah. Um, and the lower seeded team would play at home first, and then you'd have the second game, the, the higher seeded team, and then if needed, the third game would be at the higher seeded team as well. And we beat them in the first game at our place, and then they beat us in the second, so we had to go back for a third game. And um, I can I can remember making um, five threes during a stretch uh, in the second half, yeah. which blew the game open. <laughs> and to say I felt uh, an element of poetic justice at that point <laughs> would be an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> 
what, so what what exactly was the situation with uh, with Thames Valley? Because when I when I was googling you and trying to do the research, funnily enough, the the few stories that did uh, show up was uh, from the independent archives um, about your your sort of court battle with Thames Valley and and you winning you winning compensation. And then it's, it was saying that there's all sorts of other implications for the league because other players might follow suit and stuff. Mm. So what what exactly happened? Um, well. I signed a contract in good faith at the start of the season um, and uh, for uh, various reasons uh, I can still remember getting a letter through my door uh, that basically said um, we want to bring in another player but we want to stay under the salary cap because there was a salary cap at that point Um, uh, and in order for us to stay under the salary cap you now need to take a pay cut. And so I said, I'm not taking a pay cut. I'm not in breach of my contract. I've done everything that I should have done up until this point. Um, and therefore, I want you to honour my contract. You know, the, the issue that you want to bring in another player, that's not my, that's yeah. not my concern. I've signed a contract with you. Um, but basically, you know, that was it. And so I, I continued to, as I said, I, went, I was at, went to training on the Tuesday, having got the letter on the Monday. Um, and um, you know, basically forced the league to release me and I re-signed with Worthy uh, who were very happy to have me back Yeah. so it was just well it, it was a frustrating situation because that, that Tons Valley team we'd actually been playing really well as I said we were second in the league we'd just won the National Cup and um, it was a bit of a surprise I mean the, the issue we'd had was there'd been an American there at the start of the year to play the point um, he hadn't done very well so although the point guard isn't my natural position um, I, I ended up running the point for Thames Valley I wasn't a big scorer from the point but I had Steve Bucknell Pete Scantlebury Tony Holly and Neville Hopkins to get the ball to yeah. and I did a great job of getting those four guys the ball who, who could all score um, so it was, and again, we just won the cup the day before, so it was all a, a little frustrating. Yeah, of course. You know, but you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> back to back to where I think it was. Yes, um, it was. Yeah. And so, was it around this time when you had your first child as well? Must have been around. Yeah, Luke, Luke was born in '95. Yeah. So yeah, so so all that was going on. I was kind of it was. Uh, I was still playing at Worthing. We'd pretty much settled here, and, and having finished at university, I got a job working for the council down here as well. Um, my sort of first sort of foray into sports development, uh, and so it worked quite well. I was earning a bit of money playing basketball, a bit of money from my job, and um, with my my wife on maternity leave, we were able to pay the bills. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so that was Luke, and then Carla came along two years later. How much did uh, did having children kind of did, well? Or did it change your your approach to the game and basketball and stuff? It changed my approach to life. Yeah. It's as, as simple as that. Um, up until then, you know, I was have boots, will travel, um, go anywhere for you know however much or little I could earn. But having kids, you realise there are more important things, and um, I had to get a proper job. So I've been waiting for the perfect job. Um, but I, I knew I had to get a job, and that would have to fit around basketball. And I managed to to 
to do that transition quite well where I was doing the two for a little while um, but you know, ironically when I started working for England Basketball or sorry, Basketball England as it is now um, I couldn't do the two so the basketball had to stop ah, So when you stopped playing was the same time that you started working for the Federation? Yes yeah. Okay, interesting um, and obviously, so your role with uh, with England basketball, as it was back then, uh, was the development sort of the pathway guy, right? Uh, yeah, I was head yeah. of development, national development manager, um, and at that time, I was responsible for a good chunk of the sport, if you like. So I was responsible for uh, helping to grow participation, um, restructuring. The, the, the way the regions, actually the regions didn't exist at that time, so at that time there were only counties, so I, with working with the chief exec, Simon Kirkland, we uh, went about setting up the regions and creating their, their, you know, their, their role within the sport. Um, one of the things I'm proudest of is the changes we made in terms of the inter-regional competition for girls. Um, it's almost a given now that that competition should have 10 regional teams, the same as the boys. But when I started at England Basketball, the, they used to split the girls into just four regions, with the argument being there weren't enough girls playing, and therefore you, you're not going to get you know you're not going to get a decent tournament. Yeah. Um, I made a strong case for mirror, mirroring what was done with the boys. You know, almost an "if you build it, they will come" kind of mentality. So, you know, if if you've got, if you, you create a structure where you're looking for your most talented players in the region, it makes it a little bit more accessible for for players to get into it, and also it will act as a bit of a catalyst for trying to increase the number of girls programs that are running. Mm. Uh, and uh, there's no question that's that's happened. You know, because if you can imagine from the national team's coach's perspective, you go to a tournament, there are 39. 40 girls playing maybe and you've got to pick 30 for your England squad you know you're not really getting to look at a wide breadth of, of, of players especially when some of these kids are 12, 13 years old you want to have more players so you get a chance to get them in the system and help them to develop yeah. so I think creating 10 girls regions has definitely had a, an impact on the quality of girls and women's basketball in this country and what kind of other things did you do when you, when you took over the position how did you feel about uh, the state of kind of um, junior basketball development in, in England and kind of what were your, your, your biggest priorities aside from that, the inter-regional tournament for girls? Well, it, it was a new position at the, at the time when I, when I yeah. went into that role. So I kind of had a bit of a blank sheet of paper. Um, but in terms of the, the, those are the same issues existed then, many of which still exist now. Um, in terms of quality of coaches... Um, the opportunities to play at the right level, understanding where and when players need to move up a level, both in terms of national league play as well as um, the sort of regional stuff as well. Um, so th th my first year, really, I guess, in post was was I did so many miles; it's just ridiculous. <laughs> Travelling around the country, meeting basketball volunteers face-to-face, -face, hearing their views um, and making sure that I could take that on board going forward. So one of the things that came out of that as a priority was having a better relationship between basketball clubs and education. 
So myself and one of uh, another basketball legend, Steve Darlow, who was also a regional manager, we wrote the original academy program, um, which then sat on a shelf for a number of years. But pretty much what was put into place was what Steve and I wrote um, a few years before that in terms of clubs working with six form colleges, with schools and with universities. Yeah. Um, and some of that's happened, you know, just because people recognise this makes sense, it's a way to recruit young people and keep them in education. Um, but I think the, the sort of template we set out acted as a bit of a guide for how clubs and universities or, or colleges could benefit from that relationship. Did you have personal frustrations working for the, for the Federation? Loads of them. <laughs> um, was that a silly question? Or? <laughs> well, it, it wasn't. It, it wasn't perfect um, by by a long shot. Um, probably one of my biggest frustrations at that time was um, the the sort of split between the different departments. You know, so national league didn't talk to development. Um, national teams didn't talk to national league. You know, yeah. uh, and so. After a couple of years, I was given a little bit of a roving role to try to join the sport up across, you know, within the governing body to make sure that we weren't working at cross purposes. Because the sort of development brief took on participation, coaching, talent pathways, officiating, school, school, school basketball, mini basketball. So all these things were kind of in my brief that I was trying to uh, tr- and trying to make some sense of. And so, again, one of the things we did was was move National League to academic year uh, to enable more kids to stay playing and then use the regional, the regional performance program to select kids into the appropriate year for international competition. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I think we're going a bit away from that again now uh, and we'll, we'll see what, what impact that has because my... My view at the time, and I don't think it's changed, is that kids want to play with their peers. And more often than not, your peers are in the same school year group as you are. Yeah. Um, so so I mean, there were lots of frustrations. I mean, you know, the, the, we, talked, we talked about Bosman a bit earlier. So the role of the, um, the, the BBL in developing English talent was an issue and a concern for me at that time. And I not long stopped playing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I tried without success to influence that, um, but had lots of other successes. And again, you know, some of the programs we put on are one of the reasons why grassroots participation in the sport has has grown over the last ten years. And national league competition has also grown in terms of there being more teams spread around the country. I'm not sure all of them need to be in national league, but that's a whole different argument and yeah. we'll see how the structure next year impacts on that what made you uh, what made you leave basketball England in the end <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, it's a loaded question <laughs> to a degree it was I suppose the simple way I can put it without um, upsetting too many people was a was a difference of opinion about the future direction of the sport. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think I'm just going to leave it at that. You know, okay. we, I, I, we, I disagreed about some key decisions that we're making about how to go about writing a strategy. Um, and 
from and kind of lost a little bit of faith, I think, in in the decision making process at that point. Um, you know, my view was there may be some people involved that had that didn't take a long enough view about what was needed to improve the sport in this country. And I would say that's something that continues to plague our sport. Taking a short-term view to it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Um, and so I thought it'd be interesting to speak to you as well because obviously now you, with the work that you do and the work that you've done working with local government, councils, sport and everything else, um, you obviously have a, a kind of an informed perspective from the view of what's going on with Basketball England at the moment. Um, and obviously the CEO stepped down last week and we've had the three independent directors leaving to, to go and work for Beeble UK, this private vehicle, um, to, to get this investment. How do you perceive it's all gone down? Like, um, What's your opinion of it all? Oh, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have a number of concerns. Um, I suppose one of my concerns is, well, one of the things I don't understand, I guess, is uh, when you appoint uh, someone to lead your organisation and the brief is very clearly about bringing commercial assets into the sport um, as a big part of the job description at the time when Hugh Morgan was appointed, and I have looked at it. Um, I, I I don't understand how then or why you need a separate vehicle through which resources can be funneled into the governing body. Because if there's somebody that wants to invest in the sport of basketball and it's your day job to be chief exec of basketball, then surely those two things need to come together. So I do worry. I do worry about um, you know, people trying to make money out of the sport in in the short to medium term. Uh, whereas, actually, if we do some of the right things and, and we listen to the right voices, uh, I think this sport has a chance to be as big as any sport as a, you know in this country, barring football, yeah. um, because football is a religion, and we know that. Um, but you know, from a participation perspective, we're already. On, on a par with the rugby's and crickets uh, of this world, um, so I, I do worry. Yeah. Um, and my hope is that the reason for the decisions that people make are about what's in the best interest of basketball in, in England and Great Britain, not what allows them to turn a fast buck yeah. in a relatively short period of t- of time. You know, I I find I find the whole thing a little strange, really. If I'm honest, you know, um, I'm not close to it, um, so I don't have any, you know, specific additional knowledge. But looking at it from the outside, I do find it a bit strange. Yeah, no, I think yeah, I think it on the surface and and uh, and, and looking at it, it does look very strange. And obviously, a lot of people have been asking questions and stuff. Um, I've been having multiple long conversations this week with. Uh, Jan Hagen and Mark Clark and trying to find out kind of uh, everything that's going on um, and uh, yeah and it's, it's slowly coming together we'll be publishing a piece in the, in the next few days I think which is going to shed a little bit more light on everything um, but they have I mean they're, they're aware that 
they're definitely aware that it obviously doesn't look great on the surface. Um, but also, it's one of those things where, well, if there's 36 million on the table, uh, you'd be silly to then turn around and, and not look at that now. You know, you need to you need to at least look into it and do your due diligence. Um, so. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I absolutely agree there needs to be due diligence uh, yeah. paid to any opportunity to bring additional resource into basketball in this country. But it, it's not just about money. Yeah, of course. Uh, th- this is about, not for me, th- this is about how whatever resource you've got is used. I, mean, I run uh, a, a relatively small charity that's involved in grassroots sport, and we do our best to make our money stretch to reach the objectives that we've set as an organisation. Now, um, you know, again, the previous regime um, did a good job in making sure the association was uh, financially viable, um, if not forward-looking and forward-thinking. For me, whatever resource is on the table, it's, it's not about lining people's pockets now. It's about how does that resource raise the quality and the standard of basketball in England. Uh, um, personally, you know, I'm not and have never been, you know, what I give back to this sport, I give back because I love this sport and I will continue to do that in a voluntary capacity, I'm sure, you know, in the, in the years to come. Um, but it is, it is a little concerning the way in which things have been done and the lack of communication with the membership about where the association, where our federation is trying to take the sport. Now that, that to, you know, I think I said earlier, my first year, 18 months in the job, uh, I literally racked up tens of thousands of miles going to see people and talk to them and, and communicated regularly. That's the bit that's worrying you. Stuff leaks out as opposed to, you know, here's the plan, yeah. here's the vision, this is how it all leaks together. You know, involve us. Yeah. You know, all of us are doing this because we love this sport and it's, been, it's, it's changed my life beyond all recognition. So involve us, use us, talk to us so that we get this right. If there is an investment of that kind of nature coming, then we really need to be thinking very clearly about how we want to utilise that to have the best long-term impact. Not the, not a short bang and then fizz out and we're back to square one. Yeah. And I think that's key. I mean, I mean, you know, Mark is a good guy. I don't, I don't know him particularly well, but obviously he's been very involved at Barking. I think he's had a bit of a similar path to me in terms of both of his kids playing at a high level. Um, and, you know, he's invested a lot of his own personal time and effort in creating the, the academy at Barking. So, you know, again, I, I, this is not me talking against Mark in any way, shape or form. And I do genuinely wish him the best of luck in his interim role. I just really hope that the, 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 the groundswell of decision makers there are not focused on the short term, but are really focused on what's going to benefit this sport long term. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So if you, if you were to be involved uh, with the NGB uh, again, what would be your priorities right now? What are the things that you would focus on? What do you want to see? Well, as, as all, I, I want to see, amongst the things I want to see would be uh, an improvement in the quality of coaching that takes place in this country at every level. Um, in, my, in my club, and you know, again, we know that there's only going to be a handful of players that have an opportunity to play at national level. But everything we do 
for me, needs to link back to what skills do these kids need to have to play at the highest level that they're capable of. You know, it's, it's scary around Junior National League how many teams you know, with some great athletes go and sit in a 2-3 zone and then they wonder why their kids can't make it onto a national team because they've got no concept of man-to-man defence. You know, I, I, it's, it's, so for me, one of the key things here is how, you, how, you, how we improve the quality of coaching at every level, but particularly at the younger age groups where we're teaching kids the fundamentals of the game and then into national league play where we should be trying to make sure we're taking to heart some of the key things that are identified and needed for international level basketball. And that, for me, includes you know, teaching your kids how to move without the ball. Obviously, you need to be able to pass and you need to be able to shoot. You need to be able to play man-to-man defence. Uh, and you need to be in shape and be able to get up and down the floor. You know, So uh, that, to me... Would if that's the focus, then everything else starts to fall into place in terms of how you restructure the leagues. And as I said, I, you know, I, I'm going to uh, keep my powder dry to see how the new structure for the junior national leagues works out next season. Um, but that then links to what you, what you need to do to restructure uh, the leagues, um, what you need to do to make sure that the talented young players are having the opportunity to play at the top level. And unfortunately, there are more places now that are looking at link either between a university and a college uh, and a club or a college and a club in order to bring kids on, you know, places like Oakland's, Reading Rockets, um, Worcester, a few of the, and a few of the other BBL clubs are act- actively doing that now. Um, but it's about improving the quality right across the piece for me. Um, How would you go about improving coaching? Because obviously, you know, GB have got their areas of emphasis. Um, but in my mind, ever since that's been announced, I always think, well, how are you going to actually implement that and mm-hmm. ensure that coaches are doing it? Because you can't have eyeballs in every single session. Um, no. no, but there, there are two groups of coaches over which England basketball has a direct influence. Um, who, with a little bit of arm twisting, if you like, could, could be encouraged to attend, hopefully free, um, areas of emphasis or coaching CPD uh, workshops um, that you could run during the off-season, um, North, Middle and South, whatever you want to do, where you bring your coaches together, you have a group of kids, and your national team coaches are taking coaches through the areas of emphasis. And how that translates down to particip- uh, National League delivery. Because the two groups of coaches that you can influence, that England basketball can influence directly, are the coaches that are in the performance pathway. So your regional coaches, your, your the RPC coaches, the national team coaches. And that's relatively easy. But the other big group of coaches that could be influenced are the national league coaches. You know, the, We've had to do safeguarding stuff to make sure we get a national league license. Why can't we add some coach CPD into that? where the quality is, absolutely, is right, the focus is on the areas of emphasis that are going to allow kids to succeed at the next level. So for me, that, that's a very simple route. We, we're maybe not going to have to get down to all the coaches that are working in schools or are working within local league, but if National League starts to change and, and the coaches there are focused on the skill development in the right way, then I think uh, that will filter down and impact on the levels below. I want to ask with uh, with Kyler and Luke, 
how, what was the process of 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 uh, kind of teaching them the game? I mean, was it were you very kind of trying to be hands off uh, to start with and kind of let them just come to it themselves, or or was it always uh, kind of giving them drills and working on their on their fundamental skills? It's all it's all about fun, you know. Um, both Luke and Kyla started playing around sort of eight, seven, eight years old um, for a local league team. Um, here in Sussex, Kyla played with boys until she until we started a team um, uh, when she was fifteen. You know, and up until then, pretty much she played with boys apart from one other year. Um, but they played local league. They'd go along to the training sessions. Sometimes I helped out, but it was all about fun, movement, and teaching them the fundamentals. So you know, here's how you do a layup. You know, teaching them to do a strong-handed layup was the first thing you teach them. Um, understanding what an athletic stance is, you know, to get down in the right stance in order to be able to play defense, but also it's the right stance when you've got the ball in your hands, so you're a triple threat. So it was just teaching them the basics of the game and and encouraging them to compete. Yeah. Um, and both of the, both of them are competitors. Um, and so and and then really I kind of got involved with Luke as I said. Uh, um, when he started playing National League and I, he was playing in his, in his own age group and I coached the team that was a year above. So he had a year when it was just me when he was 11 playing with under-13s and then the following season he played in his own age group under-13s and also played up with me uh, with the under-14s under and then so on. Um, with Carlo it was a bit more difficult if I'm honest because there was no women's girls program in Sussex yeah um so but she played with our boys team under 13s and under 14s she played under 14s when she was 11 <laughs> um but then the when she was a proper under 14 and we registered her to play with the under 14 boys the England basketball rules wouldn't allow her to play yeah because they deemed that because there is a uh, an offer for girls under 14s then she should play with the girls team yeah the fact that the nearest team to us was an hour and a half in either direction um you know didn't kind of resonate and we no that's not fair to be honest we did appeal the decision and I think the appeal board would have liked to have supported us, but the rules of the association wouldn't allow it. Um, so, uh, for so kind of lost part of the season, and then played for the rest of that season at Seven Oaks once the appeal was turned down, and then the following year we 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 scraped together a girls team which uh, at under 16s where we were travelling with five six players to games, um, but. Two years on, with Kyla having now moved on to Oakland, I've got a squad of 15 girls that I'm passing on to the coach that's going to take over from me next year. So we've managed to build a program and we, we think next year we'll have a 14s and a 16s team. So um, we started something that in the long run is going to benefit girls across Sussex, I believe. Do you still think there's a lack of opportunities for kids to play now or do you think there's so many teams that pretty much wherever you are, unless you're really in the sticks, there's going to be places where you can play basketball? There are definitely places to play basketball now. It, again, it's harder for girls than it is for boys. Yeah. Um, so I'd still say there are some gaps for girls. But for, for the boys, there are teams pretty much everywhere that you can at least get started with. And, you know, and, and a lot of schools are playing basketball as well. Um, you know, I go back to getting the quality right in those early interactions, I think is absolutely key. 
Um, so, so, but I think it's it's definitely easier now than it than it has been in the past. Jumping back a little bit, um, there was one thing I wanted to ask you about that we didn't uh, go into, which was uh, your senior England uh, career. So you you obviously had eighteen caps, right? Um, yeah. And what yeah. what year? What's what sort of year was that around? Um, I, I kind of I had two spells in the England program. Um, one was sort of those late eighties, early nineties, um, uh, and then there was a gap of a couple of years. Um, then I played. Uh, I played again around ninety two, ninety three, around that sort of period. Um, I did okay. <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I was the bee's knees and this, that, and the other. You know, I, in the main, I came off the bench for England. Um, I had some good performances. You know, we played in some tournaments in Iceland and Portugal, and um, and you know, I obviously travelled with the team through through parts of Europe as well. Uh, won some games, lost some games, played well, played badly. Who was, um, who was on your team with you? Um, Pete Scantabry was captain. Um, they had guys like Jason Crump was on the team, Roger Huggins, uh, Michael Hales, uh, Steve Bucknell. Well, two coaches we had. I was just talking about him the other day. It'll come back to me. But Laszlo Nemeth was the coach the second time. Okay. The second time I was involved. And was it more uh, like a series of exhibition games rather than like a European Championship like it is now? Or? Um. But we played in some tournaments in Europe, but we played in the Commonwealth Basketball Championships in Malaysia as well, okay. um, which was it was unbelievably hot, Un- unbelievably hot. And the gym we were playing in had walls but no sides. You know, the air used to just flow through it, and the floor by the time you got to game time would just get damper and damper. Yeah. Um, but um, and we played Nigeria, Malaysia. Um, you know other sort of strong teams from the Commonwealth as well, but <laughs> just my luck. I get out there. Um, we, you know, had a week of camp out there before our first game, sweating, working hard, and then I come off the bench playing quite well, um, and within six minutes I sprain my ankle and I'm done for the tournament. <laughs> <laughs> Absolute nightmare. Oh, it was gutting. Um, but a great experience, and, and you know that's what I would say. You know, some great experiences. At that time, the GB program was kind of intermittent. It, it kind of would appear and disappear very quickly around sort of Olympic qualifying tournaments. Okay. Um, uh, whereas the the national team, we play home internationals. We play you know, so we play against the Scots and the Welsh if they could if, when they could get a team up. Yeah. Um, uh, and there were some trips to Australia, New Zealand, and and, and others as well. So, you know, um, but overall, I'm 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 happy that I represented England and I did okay. Um, and I, I was captain of the GB World Student Games team in '93 as well, where I played with John Amici amongst others. Oh, um, okay. And so, was that when well, John Amici was at uh, Penn? Yes. Yeah. Right. So he would come back. He would. Was it in the states? Is that right? Yeah, it was in Buffalo. Okay. So how many? How many, Who else was playing on that team with you? Oh God! You. Oh. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh. Did you have Let much me, success? Well, the the format. We finished ninth out of twenty four teams. Okay. So 
uh, and we're really unlucky not to finish in the top eight. Um, really, ba- and basically because they used to have pools of three teams. And basically the top team, uh, the eight pools of three teams, the top team went through to the top eight, the second team went in the second tier, and the third team in the bottom tier. But um, you know, we, we had um, China, who were <laughs> huge, um, you know, started two seven-footers, had a 6'10 wing, um, you know, a 6'6 two-guard and a 6'5 point, um, who we just lost to in, in, in our opening game. And then we won our other two games. Um, and they went through, but in another pool, there was, you know, which really was gutting, was Ireland, Hong, um, Hong Kong, and another team that didn't turn up. So basically, <laughs> Ireland played Hong Kong twice and beat them and made it into it? the top eight. Oh, wow. And they got blown out and finished eighth, and we won all the rest of our games and finished ninth. Oh, wow. <laughs> Good experience. Does it? The student game still happens, right? I'm trying to think. Cause we yeah. I'm sure we don't. Do, do we put in a team still? I haven't heard the last... Because I can't think of a team that's competed. I know there has been in like a few years ago, but I can't think recently. I mean, the, I'm not sure whether basketball... Maybe it depends on where it is and whether basketball is one of the sports that's included in the student uh, game. Yeah, that's a good but point. I think that's why it might have dropped out. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I played with... Lots of guys on that team whose names are going to come back to me as soon as we finish. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, that was that was a great experience. Um, you know, we just felt gutted that we didn't quite make it through. But you know, the opening ceremony was at the stadium where the Buffalo um, Bills play. Oh, really? In front of eighty thousand people. You know, that's something you don't forget very quickly. Yeah, of course. Wow. So we're, we're coming up to the end. I'm aware we're, we're approaching an hour and a half. I always finish with uh, some quick-fire questions. Um, so I would love to uh, give you a few, um, starting with the highlight of your career. Three-peating with Worthing Bears. So the third one was the sweetest, definitely. Because you were a seventh uh, seed, right? That was... Yeah, we were the seventh seed in that third game. Um, so that's high, you know high, highlight from... a. Uh, playing perspective um, yeah that's one that springs to mind career low light <laughs> um, oh, there's been a couple uh, probably the shock of, uh, of being told well two things one the shock of being told that uh, what in terms of what's going on at Thames Valley and yeah. wanted me to take a pay cut that was one low light. The other would have probably been Olympic City Giants um, playing in Manchester where we weren't getting paid. You know, that was a real low point. Did you never get paid at all there? Well, I did for uh, for about a third of the season and after that it was bits and pieces. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Um, the best player you've ever played against? <clears throat> Steve Bontrager. Steve, who, where was it? Steve he... Bontrager played at Kingston. Okay. Um, and I was still, you know, 20, 21 years old playing against him, so I was still learning it. He was point guard. He played with Dan Davis and Colin McNeish and Martin Clark. Um, you know, they were, that, the, the, Portsmouth and Kingston were basically vying for the league for about three or four years in a row. But Bontrager was, 
this little little white guy about 5'11 couldn't really jump um but had this amazing ability to keep you off balance when you're playing so I've said to I've said to Luke that in some ways he reminds me of, of Bontrager because you're never quite sure what he was going to do. You couldn't read when he was going to pull up and shoot a jump shot or make a pass or get or or look to drive to the basket. So it just made him really difficult to guard. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say he's he's on my list. The other one would be Butch Hayes, who another American guy that played um, played at Glasgow actually when when the Kingston franchise moved up north. And he was just this ridiculous, athletic monster. And he, I mean, he was skinny as anything, but had an ugly-looking jump shot, was just really effective and very, very difficult to guard. The best individual performance you've ever seen in a game that you've been live there witnessing, whether you're playing or watching in the crowd? <laughs> oh, Wow. Can I come back to that one? Let me yeah. have a think about that one. Okay. Uh, who would you take out of you and Luke at the same age? Oh, Luke. No <laughs> question. Really? Which, yeah. Oh, he's, he's way better than I was. Uh, I didn't make an England team until I was a senior. I never made an England junior team. Uh, and, you know, Luke was is head and shoulders ahead of where I was. I remember him uh, saying when even, I came down for his, uh, for his off-court interview, he said that... Uh, he was like, yeah, I need to, when we was talking about the future or whatever, he's like, yeah, I, I really want to play for the seniors one day. You know, my dad, uh, he, he never played for the juniors, but played for the seniors. And I don't mm. want to make, I don't want to be the other way around and play for the juniors <laughs> and not play for the seniors. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I haven't thought about it. I've got to say the best individual performance um, has got to, and I know Luke said his best performance for him was the 29 he had against Spain yeah. in the Division A. But for me, the most phenomenal, phenomenal individual performance was the game he played against Bosnia and Herzegovina um, okay. in the in the B in the European B semi final, which they ended up losing by a couple of points. But he was just unbelievable. You know the the shots he was making, the plays he made. He was he was unbelievable. So live sitting watching someone that alongside, I, I happened to be at the the Clippers Golden State. Warriors game where Steph Curry did that ridiculous through the legs, ran the back, stepped back three pointer a few weeks back. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's up there as well. Steph Curry is just something else. <laughs> the top junior player you've ever seen? Uh, it's got to be Luke. Yeah. It really does. You know, um, uh, I, I think. The the guy I would put as the best English point guard uh, I'd ever seen would have been Joel Moore. Yeah, I think Luke's passing him. Really? I do. Yeah, Joel was phenomenal in his in his prime. He was a hell of a player. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think Luke is is a hell of a player and has got phenomenal potential. And that's with not with my dad hat on. That's with my basketball hat on. You know, you can see he's got a skill set that can translate. Um, really well to the professional game. You, I think you've already answered this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you could change one thing about British basketball, what would it be? I, I, it would be the quality of coaching yeah. uh, for younger kids. You know, there's a whole bunch of other things that I could start to list, but um, you know, I'd like to stay out of the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, if you were to talk about 
uh, one thing that you consistently see junior players um, getting wrong or making mistakes with or kind of lacking in their skill development, what would it be? I mean, the obvious thing is to talk about people's ability to shoot the basketball, to shoot it with good form. I mean, that is there. I'm a little bit of a, of a shot doctor. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, finding that consistent rhythm to, you know, in terms of shooting the basketball that works for individuals, I think is really key and something coaches need to really spend a lot of time on. The other thing that I think coaches need to spend more time is people understanding where they need to be on defence. You know, so not just on the ball, but off the ball as well. You know, and understanding that defence is a team effort. It's not about about one individual. If you could suggest any other... Um people, guests for the podcast that have been involved with British basketball or are involved with British basketball, past or present, who would it be? Pete Scantlebury. Good one. And then finally, what do you want your legacy to be when it's all said and done? Um, well, um, I want, uh, the legacy for me, one of the legacies for me, key one is that we have a strong, sustainable club here in Worthing um, that draws in the best talent from across Sussex to play at the highest level possible. But you know, I, I, I'm hoping that club is going to continue to, to grow and, and thrive at the junior level. And hopefully we players like Luke and Kyla and we've had some other England internationals that are coming through that team, through that club now. Hopefully that will strive. So that's, that's one thing. The rest... I'll leave for other people to decide because I, I, I know in every role I've had in basketball on and off the court, I've given it 100%. Even in my day job now, where I can be supportive of basketball, I am. We're working, we're actively working with the Bristol Flyers, for example, at the moment. So you know, I'll leave it for other people to decide what, my, what that legacy is. But locally, I'm hoping that I'm helping to, to set up a really strong junior club for boys and girls. Awesome. Well, uh, we're going to call it a day there. Thank you so much, Steve. It's been uh, amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time, and hopefully we can uh, catch up at some point again soon. Definitely. Thanks, Sam. All right, cheers, Steve. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos, and more.